We're going to be jumping into Revelation today. Uh, but before, um, hopefully, I've been having issues with the clicky click. Hopefully, clicky click works. If not, do you want to check me? Whoop. Whee. There we go. We'll go, we'll go there. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Hi. Um, before we jump in, I want you guys to join in a thought exercise with me, okay? I want you to imagine some hypotheticals and engage in a bit of a thought exercise. I want you to do your best to try and forget every bit of theology and faith teaching that you know, right? Just everything that you know about God, everything you've learned thus far, just forget it. Imagine you don't know it. Now, there are some of you who are here that are like, gosh, that's going to be really hard. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that. Some of you are like, done. <laughs> Did it. Some of you are like, Colin, I'm on the same page. Did it when I woke up this morning. I came to church ready for it. All right, so imagine you don't know anything about faith. You don't know anything about the Bible. All you know is you've had an encounter with this Jesus somehow, whether it be through prayer, whether it be through someone sharing about him with you, and you feel like, man, you know Jesus is real. You know that he's doing something real and you want to follow him, right? So you don't know anything about faith, but you know that Jesus is real and you want to follow him. And someone says, cool, let's follow Jesus together. What do you do? You got to follow Jesus. What do you do? Any ideas? What do you do? Like, legitimately, hit, hit me up. Someone says, follow Jesus, but you don't know anything about faith. What do you do? Where, where is he? That's a great question. What do you do? Yep. What? Find out. How? Who? Ask who? Me? <laughs> That's way too much responsibility. Yep, Bruce. How? Social media. We're doomed. The world's going to end. That's, I love that. Thank you so much. What do you, what do, you do? How do you find out? Because one of the challenges, I'm trying to get us in the headspace of these early Christians, right? Um, you don't have any Bible that you can read. Scrolls are way too expensive. No one has their own personal scroll that they're reading. So you can't just go read the scriptures. How do you follow Jesus if you're a new person? Yeah, I saw a hand at the back. What, what do you reckon? Trust who? How is he speaking to you? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. You literally follow him around. Great thought, except for that he's gone back up to heaven at this point. <laughs> can't, you can't follow him around literally anymore. What was that? Find people who know him. It's challenging, isn't it? Because we take for granted 2,000 years of history, of theology, of teaching. We take for granted that in our pocket we have the scriptures that tell us about him every day. We have all these things around us that help us to follow Jesus. But this book, when Revelation was written, this was written to people who mostly just had an encounter with Jesus and want to follow him and now are trying to figure out in the midst of a grand Roman empire that looks really different. And so I want you to get into that headspace because this passage that we're talking about is trying to put some legs on what it means to follow Jesus and it's painting it in really vivid language. Um, and I want you to imagine what this would sound like if you didn't know anything about God. Does that make sense? And some of you are like, don't worry, Colin, I'm not gonna remember anything about theology after the sermon either. So that's cool if that's you. Um, but let's jump into, um, I can't remember if I need to go forward or backward. Do you wanna just click it on the video there, Dave? Let's listen to the text together. Revelation chapter 14. Then I looked, 
and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty-four thousand who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the hundred and forty-four thousand who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in mid-air, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulphur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise for ever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God, who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horses' bridles.
for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Good old uplifting revelation text, say. Every week you read it and you're like, oh, I feel good about myself. Um, now, I want to hear, again, we, we try to do this every week, what, what stuck out to you? What didn't make sense to you? What really stuck out to you is really interesting. I want to actually hear from us, as that text was read, what popped out to you as the, as the text was going through? The, yeah, Grim Reaper with the sickle and those harvesting? Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What else? What else stuck out to you? What came to mind? Yeah. 144,000? No women. It's an interesting one because it talks about who defiles themselves with women. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Yep, yep. We'll come to that. Uh, what else stuck out to you? Yeah. Yeah. Wine and wrath are huge, eh? And like that end, it like rises as high as a horse's bridle for 16,000. Crazy. Yep. What else? What else sticks out to you? Anything else? Yeah. Really interesting, eh? They harvest the grapes, you crush the grapes, and what comes out of the grapes, not wine, but blood. So what's Revelation doing here? We'll come to some of those things. The reason I want you, I keep engaging with it because I'm trying to train us how to read Scripture together. When you read, you're trying to look for what sticks out, what's odd, and then you ask those questions when you read it and try to find those answers. So what you find in this text, hopefully, if this works, is... Um, we had it before, I'll get the slide in a second. It's basically, this whole text is a tale of two kingdoms. It's telling about two different worldviews. So before we launch into it, last week, remember we had one of the most controversial passages of scripture with the beast of the land and the beast of the sea and 666, and there's a whole bunch there, but Keister, who does an amazing commentary on Revelation, he sums it up this way. This last chapter we just came from, which is really important to remember, the basis for the parody in Revelation 13 is the idea that Rome's power to rule rests on its ability to conquer. So the beast and the beast of the land, the beast of the sea, these metaphors for Rome and the imperial cults and Roman systems. The idea was featured in the art and the rhetoric that supported the imperial cult. Um, John accepts the Roman emphasis on the centrality of conquest in its claim to dominion. So John says, yep, I recognize that Rome loves conquering as justification for its power but where supporters of the empire saw conquest as the basis for Roman legitimacy and invincibility, so where the Romans saw conquest as good, John sees it as the hallmark of Roman tyranny. So what he's trying to do is he set up this contrast between the two, between the beast and its followers and the lamb and its followers. So you almost get this picture of like these two kingdoms, right? So let's look at in Revelation here, uh, verses one through three. So then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, uh, standing on Mount Zion, and with him the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So 144,000, if we've been through this, what does 144,000 represent throughout Revelation? It's God's people. So 12, is the, 12 kind of represents God's people. It's Israel. It's the apostles. 144,000 are 12 12s. Like it's like definitely the full number of God's people. So... Cool. So we see the God's people, and they had a name, his name, and his father's name written on their foreheads. And you see, already here, you're seeing a contrast. Because in the last chapter, you had the beast who put his number on their hands or their foreheads. And now you have the 144,000 who have God's name on their foreheads. You see, Revelation is setting up this contrast. So this is what the kingdom of the beast looks like, the kingdom of the dragon looks like. 
And then here's what the people of God look like. He's setting them up at odds so you can begin to see the difference. Because often it's hard to know what's right, A, what's good. Revelation is trying to remove all the gray area to say, look, you're either in this kingdom or you're in this kingdom. Which one are you going to serve? And so then it says, I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and a loud peal like thunder. Um, the sound I heard was that of harpists playing their harps. Now, there's a fascinating little thing about harps. This isn't the main point of the story, but throughout Revelation, Revelation's pretty critical of Rome, eh? Like, John was not a big fan of the empire. He wasn't a big fan of Roman imperial systems, and he critiques Rome a lot. And last week, I talked about how Revelation constantly critiques empires, and it could have been easy for, if you're a Roman citizen reading this, to feel like, oh gosh, here comes another slag on my nation and feel like there's hard to be any place for you, right? But what's interesting about this word harp is it's a very specific kind of instrument, and it's a specific instrument that was used in different temples of worship, to Zeus, at the imperial cult temples, to Aphrodite, to Athena. There was a specific harp that was used in praise and worship. This wasn't a harp that was used in synagogue. It wasn't used in regular Christian gatherings. And what I find fascinating about this is there's this little hint that John's putting in there that says not everything about Rome is evil. Not everything about Roman people is evil. It's the systems that oppress people that are ruled on greed and power and lust for control. That's what God's trying to tear down. But in this heavenly picture of worship that's about to unfold, there are Roman instruments there. And I think that's helpful because, again, last week I was talking pretty hard about those of us who are descendants of empires, whether they be the British Empire or the American Empire, often you can feel like, oh, gosh, is there anything good about me? <sighs> and so I just wanted to highlight that because there are elements of good from Roman society that make it into the Lamb's people in worship. It's just that so much of Roman system wasn't, was built on power that it's critiqued. So there are elements of every culture that gets represented in God's redeemed people. So then the sound I heard was that of harpists playing their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. Um, does anyone remember another song that was sung between the, before the, the throne and the four living creatures and the elders? Is the song we just sang. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the Lamb who was slain, like all this language. No one could learn the song except for the 144,000 who'd been redeemed from the earth. Why do you think no one else could learn it? Is it because it's like super exclusive? Like... We're the good guys, the rest of y'all are dumb. We're the saved ones, y'all are sinners. No, like that's not, that's not what John's trying to do here. What John's highlighting is it's, he's drawing the contrast between the way that Rome has conquered, the way the empire lives, and the way the lamb has conquered. Again, this has been happening throughout all of Revelation. How does the empire win? It's through force, military might, coercion, economic injustice. How does the lamb win? by dying, by crucifying himself. It makes you think about that passage of we preach Christ crucified uh, foolishness to the Greeks and stumbling block to the Jews. He's highlighting that it's hard for anyone who doesn't follow the lamb to understand because the way that the lamb conquers is so different from the way the world does. Jesus wins not by forcing his way, but by laying down his life for his enemies. And to Rome, that makes no sense. That's what, that's what he's highlighting here. So then, this song is sung, and he goes into describing who are the people of God's, who are they? 
Who are the ones that get to be a part of the 144,000? What does it look like for them? And he lists these few things. So they are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. Um, they follow the lamb wherever he goes, and they were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and to the lamb. For no lie was found in their mouths, and they are blameless. So if you break it down, there are three things. It's trying to talk to you about what does it look like to be a a follower of Jesus. If you know nothing about theology, if you know nothing about faith, you know you want to follow Jesus and you don't know what else to do, John's beginning to give you pictures of what that looks like. And the first one that it has is undefiled or pure. Now, this one's a bit interesting. Uh, I think one of the critiques, if you're not a Christian or you're vaguely familiar with the Christian faith, one of the main critiques I often hear people leveling at the church is that we are really sexually repressed. Like, Christians just don't like sex at all, right? Like, you go to church teachings, like, no one should talk about it. Even married people shouldn't have sex unless they're forced to by the devil, you know? Like, and um, here's, we have all these hang-ups. And so is that what Revelation's saying? Is he saying that, look, you know who gets to be in the 144,000? It's all y'all who haven't had sex while the rest of you are dirty. They're dirty. You're not. In. Like, is that, what, is that what he's saying? No. Like, of course not. Of course <laughs> Someone said Yes. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna, all right, um, I'm not gonna. So what's Revelation, is he saying that the people of God are those who just haven't had sex at all? No, that's not what he's trying to say. Throughout Revelation, sexual immorality is this metaphor that keeps coming up again and again. If you remember to the early churches, there was this, in um, one of the churches, there was this woman, Jezebel, who kept tempting them to sexual immorality, to, to defile themselves with people. What was she talking them to? She was saying that you could go and you could offer food at the temples. You could participate in worship to Athena. You could participate in worship to Zeus and that doesn't compromise your faith. While John is saying, no, there is but one God. There is but one person we give our trust to. And if you go to all these temples and say, yep, Zeus is Lord, yep, Caesar's Lord. Yeah, it's all good. John's saying it's like, it's like you're giving yourself over to these things. Um, putting it another way, uh, Keister has this really fascinating way where he talks about it. He says, look, the beast's mark identify those who are willing to accept the claims of ruling power in order to purchase goods without hindrance in the public market. That's what that 666 was before. They can't buy or sell. So those who take that symbol um, want to buy goods in the public market. Revelation recognizes that the desires of the readers to participate in commercial life can make them affirm imperial claims in ways that the author thinks will violate their Christian commitments. So when it's saying those who are undefiled, it's talking about those who do not get into bed with the empire. They do not get into bed with systems that oppress people. Do you wanna know what it looks like to follow Jesus? It means you don't prop up systems that hurt the poor. You don't go and offer sacrifices to Caesar saying that he's God when he's actually abusing the people around you. You want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus? You don't get into bed with systems that are hurting people because it's just counterintuitive. So that's this language of purity, of don't get into bed, don't defile yourselves. It has to do with our heart attitude of where are we putting our allegiance to? Who are we following? Who are we trusting? If we put our faith in all these other gods and all these other systems, it's like we're getting into bed with, with the beast. So that's what, that's what that sexual imagery is all about. Um, another way, John uses the image of immorality for commercial networks 
where relationships are based on the insatiable desire for luxury and a willingness to provide anything for a fee. He likens those seeking benefits from the empire to clients seeking pleasure from a prostitute and the mark of the beast as a symbol for all those who identify with the empire for economic advantage. Does that make sense? It's pretty grounded, eh? So if you're trying to follow Jesus, you're like, well, well, that's pretty clear. That's a helpful picture of what it means to follow Jesus. So the next one is this engaged following the lamb. Now, Peter highlighted here, there's this dramatic shift of those who don't defile themselves with women to those who follow the lamb wherever they go. And what Revelation does is it switches from male imagery for the church as people who don't sleep with temple prostitutes, and it immediately switches to marriage language. The people of God were men in the first example. Now in the second example, they're the bride. This language of following the lamb wherever he grows, this is, it goes, this is engagement language. Those who are betrothed to the lamb. And you'll see that at the end of Revelation, the church is described as the bride. So we've just gone from male imagery to female imagery. So thankfully, thanks be to God that in the new heavens and the new earth, it is not 144,000 dudes. Ain't nobody want that. It would smell awful. No one would shower. It would be horrific. All right. So thankfully, that's not what Revelation is talking about. Instead, it's using marriage language. So it's about someone who's trying to follow getting married to the lamb. And it's this language of like turning your whole life to orientate around a new future. If you're single, you're going this way. You have your life going this way. Like before I married Haley, my life was going this direction. As soon as I got engaged to Haley, everything shifted. All my conversations, my decisions about where I was going, I now ran past another person. My values and what I wanted to do, I had to engage that with someone else. My life orientates around a new future, a new goal. And so when Revelation's saying, they are like those who are waiting on the lamb, following him wherever he goes, this is marriage language. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means when you're thinking about your future, you don't think about it the way you used to. You don't make decisions the way you used to before you were Christian. You now run them through the filter of, what is Jesus calling me to? What does it mean to participate in God's kingdom? What does it mean to live a generous lifestyle? What does it mean to love my neighbor? All those questions now have to shift as you think about them from the perspective of the lamb. Then finally, it talks about first fruits or harvest. It shifts now to agriculture language. And what's fascinating is here is it's those who are purchased. The first fruits who are purchased by the blood of the lamb. And here's this lovely reminder to all of us, which is that so often a list like this can feel like things that you have to do in order to be a part of God's people. Like here's this standard you have to meet in order to be a part of the 144,000. This last one levels that. How did you get there? Through no work of your own. You were purchased. Christ won you. How did he win you? Because Caesar wins people too. It usually comes on the back of chariots and armies. And he comes forward saying, I've purchased the cities for the empire. How does Christ win you over? He's laid down his life for you. He's given everything for you. And so in God's kingdom, there's no room for hierarchy. And you are not here based on how well you have achieved for him. You're not part of the church community based on how well you've achieved your Christian goals for the week. You're here because God has brought you here. And that's enough. No one can ever lay claim to that. 
that is enough. It's cool, eh? It's this picture of what it means to follow Jesus. So then John, well, he shifts gears. So it's that first image of like the lamb, and then he does this language about these angels. And what you find is it's this contrasting image. So first you had the people of God, the 144,000, and now he shifts to these three angels. Um, oh, wait, I'll skip that. Here we go. But before we do that, let's talk about a fun topic, guys. Who wants to address God's wrath? It's like the elephant in the room of this passage, A. Did anyone, I mean, you guys are all good Christians, but when we read that passage, when it talks about the people getting burned with sulfur and the smoke of their torment rising forever and ever, anyone else feel really uncomfortable? Yeah, no one. Okay, you guys are all like, burn, sinners, burn. No, um, please, don't, please don't be like that. That is bad. Don't shout burn. This is a weird sermon. Um, I want to talk about it because wrath is genuinely in Revelation and also to faith, if you're not a Christian, or for a lot of our young people, people of my generation, the idea of wrath is one of the most difficult things to grapple with in the Bible. How does a loving God rejoice at the torment of evildoers forever and ever and ever? And now there's two ways that often people have dealt with this. Um, some people are like, you need to get over it, God's God. If he wants to burn people forever, who are we to complain against that? Like, have you heard those preachers? Some of you might think that if you do. Sorry, I'm not trying to shame you, but that's one response of how you do it. Like, when you read this, you say, well, God's God. I can't tell God what to be like. If God wants to burn people forever, that's his choice. I'm just glad it's not me. You should repent so it's not you. Like, that's often one response. But I think if you, for at least for people in my generation, man, that answer runs hollow. Because we want to worship a God that we love, right? And you want to worship a God that seems just and fair. And so to worship a God that rejoices in the burning of innocence forever and ever, that's a tough pill to swallow. And I know a lot of people who've walked away from faith purely based on that question. It's just saying, I cannot jump to that bridge. Another, another thing that they've done is some people have looked at that and said, look, they got it wrong. Look, John's just off on his bike. He's doing a crazy thing. And honestly, God would never do that. God would never burn people. He would never hurt people. In fact, all the judgment in the Bible is quite overblown. It was written thousands of years ago in a patriarchal society where that's how they worked. And 2,000 years later, we can look at that from a modern perspective and see, well, Jesus wouldn't really want to hurt people. So let's just minimize the aspects of God's judgment. And, and you can do that, but you have a real challenge in that that's not a God I'd particularly like to follow either. Let me give you an example. Um, here in New Zealand, we have one of the highest rates of child abuse um, in the developed nations. So every seven minutes, there's a domestic violence call to the police uh, that they answer. And in 60% of those, um, if there's violence with the mother, that violence carries on through to the children. Another horrifying thing is about one in four girls in New Zealand will be sexual abused, sexually abused before they are 15. Here in New Zealand, like that's what we have to reckon with. It is horrible, isn't it? It's just awful. And here's the thing. If God the Almighty is not frustrated by that, what kind of God is he? If he just looks at that and says, look, they didn't mean to abuse her. It's fine. We'll all be okay in the end. What kind of justice is that for the oppressed? If God isn't interested in ending evil, then what kind of good God is he? Because our world, like that child abuse is just one small thing. If we expand that to a global scale, 
There are thousands of genocides, human trafficking. There are great evils that plague our world. And if God isn't interested in ending the things that are destroying the earth, then how is there justice? If everybody just gets to heaven with a free pass and there's no engagement, no acknowledgement of the wounds that were caused, you also have to deal with what kind of God is he? Because he doesn't seem to care about the victims, does he? So wrath is one of the most challenging aspects that we have to grapple with. But what I love about Revelation is it talks about wrath, and I think it gives us a way forward to engage with God's justice, but still maintain a God of character whom we love and we want to follow. Is that okay if we go down that journey? Anyone resonate with that frustration, or is it just me? Like, I wrestle with that a lot. Some of you guys are like, I've solved it, but for me, I find it, I find it really difficult. So in this picture of the beast, we can see a picture of how wrath works in the Bible. So now remember, in Revelation 11, which has started this whole series that we're going on, Revelation began with this phrase that says, beware, O doers of evil in the world, for God is coming to end those who are destroying the earth. There's this story of God is coming to end the sin and the evil that is causing deep harm in our world. But now the angels come forward and they do these proclamations to the world, right? And so the first thing that comes out is this call to repentance, where this angel comes out and says, great is the Lord and great is his gospel that has come to redeem all peoples. That word gospel, we think of it as a Christian word, like it's super Christianese, like I love the gospel, I believe in the gospel. It wasn't always a Christianese word, it was political. It was the same word that emperors would use when they came to destroy, like to came to liberate, <laughs> liberate a foreign city. They would come with the gospel. I bring the gospel of Caesar Augustus, the good news that his enemies have been defeated and his rule and his kingdom has come. So when they say, here comes the gospel, there's this announcement that God is coming. Repent. Turn away from the beast. There's this call immediately to the whole world, the entirety of creation saying, do not follow the beast. All the beast is in, that is interested in is destroying you, is destroying God's creation of harming one another hear the word, come back and worship. So one of the interesting phrases that, that Revelation used is, do not worship the earth or the sea, but worship the one who has made them. And man, what a beautiful image, particularly for today's society where so much of what people value is what we see. It's what we have. It's the respect that we feel like we get from our peers. It's the sense of self-satisfaction doing a job that we want. But John's saying, beware. If you live your life seeking those things, they may destroy you. Instead, worship the one who has made you. So to all of the world and to the, who we call the evil doers or those who follow the beast, Revelation first starts out always with a call to repentance. God is calling people back. The next thing that happens is it says fallen. Fallen is Babylon the great. And you get this truth about Babylon and the beast. It's this big declaration that says this is wrong. The way Rome conquers is wrong. It is evil. Babylon, we're going to see it's foreshadowing. Babylon is this image that's going to be for this woman. This, this, she's presented as an adulteress or a whore. And it's this picture of Rome. And he's saying, it's fallen. Don't put your faith in it. Don't put your faith in the world systems because they're crumbling. Don't put your faith in corrupt governments because they're crumbling. Don't put your faith in corrupt bribes because they are crumbling come out from there and follow the lamb. And then it moves forward to this warning of wrath, which is the most tr 
troubling verses, eh? Where it says, beware those because they're going to be burned and the smoke's going to come rise up from them forever. And here's what I think is really important for us to hold on to. The way Revelation talks about wrath is really unique. It's not God just doling out injustice. There's this symmetry to what happens. There's this pattern. Let me see if I can show you. And I think it might help make sense of it. Hopefully it does. Because to me, this thing is, I think it's a big deal. Um, here we go. So there's a symmetry. It says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, who made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. So there's this image of wine. Babylon conquers because she gets the nations drunk on her power. And then those who follow Babylon, they end up drinking the wine of God's fury. Wine is the thing that has destroyed and allowed them to gain power, but now wine is the thing that destroys them. Or another image, and you get that at the end with these grapes, hey, this wine press of God's wrath, wine there, wine here, wine. there's a symmetry. What they have done to gain power is the thing that destroys them. Another way to say it here is um, look at this imagery of fire. It shows up fascinating. So they talked about how the people will be burnt with fire, the followers of the Lamb will be burnt with fire. If you fast forward a little bit, Babylon, whom people are in love with, they are defiling themselves with, which is this image of Rome. The beast and the ten horns, so this beast that we're worrying about, they eat her flesh and they burn her with fire. So Babylon, who has gained power by worshiping the beast, is now devoured by the beast. And then a little bit later, it says, hallelujah, he has condemned the great prostitute Babylon, and the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So the people who followed the beast, the smoke goes up forever and ever. Babylon is burnt, and the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And if you look even ahead when it talks about, like, fire, um, so this is what it says about the followers. They will be tormented with burning sulfur, and the smoke from their torment will rise forever and ever and ever. If you skip ahead to the end of Revelation, there's this picture of evil coming to an end, and the metaphor that Revelation uses for it is this lake of fire. And this is the destination for the dragon, which is the great symbol of evil in the world. Everything that's wrong with the world is embodied in the dragon and the beast. And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Do you see the symmetry? You see how John's connecting these things? One of the challenges is when we try to understand hell or God's justice, we go and we just read one verse in Revelation and we say, all right, what happens to the sinners? They follow the beast, they get burned, and the smoke rises forever and ever. Well, that's hell. I figured it out. But Revelation is actually doing something complex and really beautiful. It's tying together all this imagery. And what it's saying is that, it's this picture of how does God unleash wrath? The things that people have done to gain power through corrupt means, if they have conquered with violence, by violence they will themselves be conquered. If they have run one with greed, by greed they will end up losing all of their money. The picture of divine wrath in Revelation is not God just mitting out justice or like pain for the sake of it. It's God almost releasing his hands and letting the natural consequences take place. If you live a life oppressing people, you will be oppressed. Think of Jesus' language. If you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. So when we think of God's wrath, it's almost like God has been holding things at bay. He's been holding things together, holding back the evil consequences of people's actions. And he's calling them to repentance, saying, please stop, stop. 
Babylon has fallen. Don't give in to this. Stop doing this. Give it up. Come back to me. Follow the lamb. But for those who will not relent, for those who want to follow the beast, God releases his hands and says, okay, this is, this is where the beast is going. If you really want to follow the beast, the, the beast is, ends up ended. And if you, if you want to follow, you, you can. I don't want you to. God spent the last while calling them to repentance and drawing them back. But wrath in the Bible comes out that way, particularly in Revelation. God's wrath is him removing his hands and letting the consequences of their sin take full effect upon them. Um, Keister talks about it this way. Um, the vision of Babylon will show, uh, will show how those who use violence against others become the victims of violence and how a society devoted to consumption is eventually consumed. When these practices ruin those who do them, they function as the wine of the divine wrath. Does that make sense? One of the great ways we know that this is true is um, if we look ahead to that, the, the, the wine press image, you mentioned why is there blood here? In this harvest image, first God harvests the wheat, which is this metaphor for the church, the people of God. They're drawn in, it's great. God brings us together and we are home. But then God uses the same imagery, he flips it now into the kingdom of the beast and he uses the language of wine to connect it with the previous ones. And he says, look, the angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grape and threw them into the great wine press of God's wrath. They were trampled in the wine press outside the city and the blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridle for a distance of, of 1,600 stadia. Now again, Revelation's not trying to tell you specifically how many, it's trying to tell you 1,600. So four, you think of the four corners of the earth, there's this complete picture. 1,600 is like four, four. It's this massive amount. But if, I did this because I was interested, if you ran that into actual distances, that's 300K. So that is the distance from Tauranga to Hastings. So if you want to know how much blood is flowing out of this wine press, it's like Tauranga to Hastings, about as high as a horse's bridle. Now, Brooke's not here, but horse people, that's like what, this high, roughly? John, you, like, like this high? So we're looking at what, a meter and a half? For 300 Ks, a river of blood, this high running that long. Then oh, kind of gross, right? What's interesting here is, again, if these grapes are a metaphor for those who follow the beast, what is the fruit of their efforts? What is the fruit of Rome's efforts? What, is, what, is, what do we get when we squeeze them? What do we get out of Rome when we put pressure on it? It's the blood of people. So much blood. Trails, like truckloads of blood. And when Revelation would have read this, if you were a reader in Roman society, it's giving you this picture of if you follow Rome, do you know, I don't know what the fruit of Roman Empire? They talk about themselves being a great, the greatest nation, like the greatest empire the world's ever seen. It will never end. But when God pushes on them, do you know what the fruit of their labor has been? The blood of innocence. How much? A huge torrent that no one could survive. And when Revelation reads this, when you're reading about God's wrath, you're not reading the question of why is God so mean? When you read that passage, you're like, how did God wait this long? How was God this merciful that he waited this long to bring out justice and there was that much injustice? So is that helpful? A picture of how God is working out wrath? He's not a vengeful God who is looking forward to burning the sinners because he gets his kicks off of it. That's just not how God, presents, God is presented in Revelation. Instead, God constantly is trying to call people back. He's saying, warning, if you follow the beast, this is what 
will happen to you. So what you find here is a tale of two kingdoms, two worlds that you can live in. Now, why does this matter? Why is this passage so important? Look, genuinely, I think it is helpful for us to understand the nature and character of God, to know that how God deals out wrath is he is still just, that God cares about the innocence. And I know people of my age who have walked away from faith because they've not been able to process through this. The kingdom of God is good. The kingdom of God is pure, it is hope, and it is life. And the kingdom of the beast is destructive. It will, it will tear you apart. And John is giving you this choice between these two. And now here's the part that people of my generation don't like, is that John is giving you very little wiggle room between the two. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm, I love gray. Um, those of you who did that like issues facing the church connect group with me, you'll know I really love the gray area between things. I'm like, well, it's kind of this, but it's kind of that. And we're trying to figure it out together and let's still love one another. I'm a very gray orientated person. Revelation is hard for me to read because it does not give me that space. Revelation is trying really hard to help us to recognize that the whole world is either moving towards Jesus or it's moving away from him. Now, let me be clear, when we say moving towards Jesus, I don't just mean the church. God knows if we follow church history that the church has been moving towards the beast just as much as people outside of the church has been. So it's not about who's in the church and who's out. It's about the position of your heart and the people of God. Are you moving towards Jesus? And if you are not, then you are being deceived by the world and you're following the beast. And the warning to that is not shame on you or you're a bad person. Again, the, the beast wins by deception. And Revelation is saying, beware, it's so easy to be deceived by it. When you think about a modern society's context, how easy is it for us to try and gain our self-worth from the world around us? We think what will make us happy, what will really get us there? Well, I gotta find that job that I really love and I gotta get that house that works out really well and once I get that family sorted and that's working out really okay, then I'll be happy and then I can get my hobbies all set up and I'll be able to go and do that thing and, and I'll get those friendships and I'll get that boat but I won't have too big of a boat because I'm a Kiwi and I don't wanna show it off but it'll be like a nice boat and like it'll be a good boat with my neighbors and we, like, we put so much of our value in all of these things. Yet what's the fruit that that is bearing in New Zealand? There's some good things, totally. But also there is a rising mental health crisis. There is a rising isolation crisis as we don't know how to maintain relationships. As people are getting more and more isolated, we don't know how to talk to one another, we don't know how to listen to one another. Revelation is saying, come out from that, please. Don't put your faith in that. Instead, come follow Jesus. Participate in his life. Don't get in bed with the empire. Don't perpetuate systems of injustice that hurt the poor. Instead, orientate your life around Jesus. I, mean, if I can invite the band up. We'll come up and finish with one last song together. Um, but I want to finish with one of the greatest poets in human history. Um, anyone know Bob Dylan? Yeah, Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan wrote a great song about this. Um, most of you will know it, and it's challenging us to this one reality. And he says, the great poet Bob Dylan, he says, you may be a construction worker working on a home. You might be living in a mansion. You might be living in a dome. You may own guns, and you may even own tanks. 
You may be someone's landlord, you may even own banks, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. You may be a preacher preaching spiritual pride, maybe a city councilman taking bribes on the side, maybe working in a barber shop, you may know how to cut hair, you may be someone's mistress, you may be somebody's heir, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil and it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You may be a state trooper, I might be a young Turk. You may be the head of some big TV network. You may be rich or poor. You may be blind or lame. You may be living in a country under another name, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. This is what Revelation asks us. Which kingdom will you be a part of? Could, you, could we stand together?